Good morning. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Nehemiah, 13th chapter. It's the very last chapter of that book in the Old Testament. We've spent a considerable amount of time in this book. We're wrapping it up this morning. This is our Ignite Teaching Series, Part 4, Fan the Flame. Let me begin with a couple of questions here. The first one is, it kind of sets us up for our teaching this morning. If his love is better than life, if his love is better than life, I'm convinced of that. Uh, Psalm 63.3 says that, his love is better than life. If his love is better than life, then why would our hearts ever grow cold? Why would our hearts ever grow cold? And here's another uh, question for you. If, if he is our most satisfying reality, would you push me just a tad, please? Uh, if, if he is our most satisfying reality then what if I don't desire him? See, I'm convinced that he's our most satisfying reality. He, God, experiencing him, knowing him, walking with him. And so what if you don't desire him? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to kind of work through those issues because we're talking about fanning the flame. And as we've worked through this teaching series, we've talked about three components of fire, having a heart passionate for the Lord Jesus Christ, which is normal Christianity, when you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, you begin to understand, if you just get a hint of what he's done for you, um, and uh, the beauty and the glory of who he is, oh my goodness, game over. You want to go for him, you want to live for him, you want to walk with him, you want to experience him in your life. That's, that's normal Christianity. And so fire, that fire... As we talked about, there's three components of fire. There's heat, and then there's fuel, and then there's oxygen. And so in this series, we've looked at the the heat, which is Nehemiah 8, the Spirit of of God working through the Word of God. And, uh, And then we've seen that in the hearts, which is the fuel, the hearts of the people of God, which is the oxygen... Uh, chapters 11 and 12, Igniting a Passion for God. Let me say that again. I I probably confused you in that. So revival is the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. That's chapter 8 we looked at in Nehemiah. In the hearts, in our hearts, repentant hearts, that's the fuel, chapters 9 and 10 of the people of God. We looked at that last weekend, which is the oxygen, igniting a passion for the Son of God. So fire naturally grows when it has enough fuel repentant heart, and oxygen community. And as we've seen with all these wildland fires that are in our state and around all these other states, they've got plenty of fuel and enough oxygen, and it's pretty hard to put those fires out. And so it will be with you if you have enough fuel and oxygen. So let's talk about that. Take a look at your notes here. This is what typically happens in our lives. This is why our hearts grow cold. And I I wrote this out. Here's the downward spiritual spiral that typically happens. And this is what's happened in the book of Nehemiah because the first seven chapters was really the rebuilding of the wall. They return to the land of promise. It's the, uh, the land of milk and honey, the land of strength and satisfaction. And, and now they're having this revival. God's igniting a passion within them for him. And just when you thought everything was going to go great, and it doesn't, chapter 13, the book ends really miserably. 
They go back to how they were before. And and this is really the pattern. And this is the pattern you see throughout the whole Old Testament. This is a pattern we find ourselves in. And uh, take a look at this. So it starts with complacency. We have a lack of zeal and fervor for God, which inevitably leads to compromise. Our life begins to mirror the idolatrous culture around us, and so our life should be, be shaped more by God's word than the world, but oftentimes because of complacency, we begin to compromise, and then compromise leads to consequences. Inevitably, you give your heart to anything other than God. It's going to end in emptiness and enslavement. And then what we saw in them, as we see in ourselves, oftentimes we cry out to God, we turn from sin, trust in God, and then there's covenant renewal. Restoration of spiritual vision and vitality, and that's what we saw in the last few chapters, but then all of a sudden we see complacency with compromise, and uh, it's just a matter of time that they're going to experience the consequences, but Nehemiah has to come back to the land and set them straight. So let me ask you this, where's the fight So first fill in the blank. Where's the fight? The fight is in the complacency. You can fill that in there. It's in the complacency. We're fighting. Listen to me. We're fighting against complacency. We're fighting for our deepest delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, once you fill in the blank, look up here. You got to get this. Every day, listen, every day, the fight of faith is to fight for your deepest delight in him. Because when you don't find your deepest delight in him, complacency begins to take place. And complacency leads to compromise, which leads to consequences, which leads to ultimately crying out to God and then covenant renewal. You don't want to be on that roller coaster. So every day you fight for delight. You fight for joy that he is your most satisfying reality. And it is a fight. That's the fight of faith. Now, there's a video I'm going to show you at... uh, It was passed on to me from someone that was in this church, and I think over the last couple of weeks it's gone viral. A lot of people have watched it, and I think it kind of helps us set up this teaching this morning. The title of the video is, It's Not About the Nail. Maybe you've you've seen it. Anybody seen that video? Yeah, okay. Two, three, four of us. Okay, it hasn't gone that viral, has it? (laughs) So anyway, check this out. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know, and sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless and I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail. See, you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just, sometimes it's like, There's this achy, I don't know what it is, and I'm not sleeping very well at all, and all my sweaters are snagged, I mean, all of them. That sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. 
Oh, come on. No. If you would just don't. Try to see things my way. Okay. Um, that's pretty harsh, huh? And you guys did laugh a little bit more. It made me feel a little uncomfortable. The first service, they didn't hardly laugh. And so maybe they have a few more nails, huh? <laughs> hey, listen. It is about the nail. And this text is about pulling nails. But you've got to be teachable. You've got to be honest about your life. Because if we're going to fan the flames of our passion for Jesus, there are things that keep those flames from being fanned. And that's what the 13th chapter of Nehemiah is all about. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. We're going to dive into our text this morning. So Father God, we are here for you to pull the nails from our lives that are keeping us from fullness of life in you and in our full devotion to you. Redirect our wandering hearts to their true destination and most satisfying reality, our Lord Jesus Christ. Continue the process of, of rebuilding our brokenness and reviving our deadness through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit. And may we, your church, be beautified so that hard-to-reach people within our circles of influence would be attracted to you through us, we pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Let me walk through it. We're going to work uh, through it a section at a time. Hopefully, we'll be able to read the whole, the whole text, the whole chapter. I've got four things, four nails we're looking at. I know we're mixing metaphors with fire and four, uh, three components of fire and then nails, but uh, you'll, you'll understand as we work through this. But, but how do we fan the flame, verses 1 through 9, and on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Check this out. This is so awesome right here. This is one of those, you know, scriptures you underline. So these people cursed them. They hired a guy, a prophet, false prophet, to curse the people. But check this out. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. So, so here's the deal. We all are cursed in, in different ways by people in our lives. People sin against us. There's a curse upon our lives. Listen to me. Whatever happens, God will take those curses, listen to me, and turn them into a blessing for you because he loves you. I mean, listen, that's Romans 8.28. That's Genesis 50.20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that God took the curse against us and turned it for our blessing. That's what God specializes in. That's what this whole book's about, rebuilding brokenness, reviving deadness. Yeah, yeah, and so it's cool. So whatever's happened to you, don't become bitter. Allow it to make you better as God works in your life, as you give it over to him, because he will do some phenomenal things through that. Do you hear me? I, I'm, I'm convinced of that. I see him do that all the time. So I know that some of you have been really, really wounded and hurt by others, and that's what these people, they were after them. They were out to get them, and it says right here. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing, and he'll do the same for you. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel, all those of foreign descent. And now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, 
and was related to Tobiah. So here's a priest who is related to Tobiah. Go back to chapter 2 of Nehemiah, and this is an enemy, one of the big three enemies that were opposing the rebuilding of the wall. They were opposing the nation of Israel returning to the land. So this Tobiah and this priest prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So he's clearing out a room in the temple to let this guy hang out, live, kind of turning it into his own little studio apartment. And while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is away, and when the cat is away, the mouse will play. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening here. In fact, this is an interesting lesson on what motivates us to live for God. If we're only motivated because of, hey, what, what will people think? People are watching me. You know, do you behave a different way around Christian friends than you do non Christian friends? In other words, are you motivated extrinsically or are you motivated intrinsically because you live for an audience of one? It's obvious that these people were kind of motivated primarily because Nehemiah was breathing down their neck and now that he is gone, all kinds of bad things begin to take place. There's this complacency that leads to compromise and this guy's compromising right here with the temple. By the way, when the Bible in the Old Testament refers to the temple, Old Testament temple, the New Testament temple is what? The PA building here at Sandra Day O'Connor? No, actually, you're looking at the temple through the people sitting around us. Actually, the temple in 1 Corinthians is uh, individual Christians and then Christians corporate. We are the temple of God. And so keep that in mind as we kind of uh, look at the Old Testament picture, New Testament principle of that. And uh, where did I finish off here? Prepared place, okay, yep. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. That's verse 5. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib, notice what he calls this. He says, this is flat out evil, evil of Eliashib, had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, and then I gave orders. And they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Stop there. This is God's word. We'll continue reading on. And now... Let's talk about this. This is a little bit of a picture. How many have ever seen HGTV where, uh, no, I don't know, this is an HGTV. It's actually the, the, I think it's the cooking channel or the food channel, food network or something. They've got a couple programs on there. One is called Restaurant Stakeout and then the other one's Mystery Diner. Anybody ever watch those or see those? Those are really interesting, aren't they? And so typically the owner of the business of the restaurant is kind of, has some suspicion that one of his employees is ripping off the company. And, or maybe they're just treating customers badly. And so what do they do? They set up these cameras and they catch them in the act. I was watching one about a week ago where this, this niece was uh, hired by, you know, obviously her uncle that owns the, the company, and she was treating people terrible. I mean, it was unbelievable. In fact, this one guy sent back his hamburger and she took the hamburger bun and wiped it up underneath her armpit before she 
put the, it makes you really think twice, you know, next time when you go to a restaurant. I mean, when you watch stuff like that. And he was watching this on, on the camera. Oh, he was livid. I mean, I, who wouldn't be? And he, he fired her so quick. And it was just, I mean, you get, this is a little bit of what's going down here. It's almost kind of like restaurant stakeout or mystery diner. Somehow, Nehemiah finds out. He comes back on the scene. And, and these people, because of their complacency, there's compromise. He's let this guy come right into the temple and set up, you know, set up his little apartment in there and gotten rid of all of the, the, the furnishings and the things that they've needed. Now, how does that apply to us? How does that apply to us? In fact, Nehemiah says it's evil. It needs to be cleansed from the table or from the temple. And so how do we fan the flame? Here's the first, uh, next fill in the blank here. By not tolerating sin. And, and I think this is, the, this is what he's teaching us through this Old Testament picture. The New Testament principle or how we can apply this to our lives is by not tolerating sin. Now we've got to define sin. Romans 3.23, it says... Uh, For all have sinned, that's all of us, everybody, all have sinned and fall short of what? Anybody know? You guys know it, the glory of God. So what it's saying is that you and I were created by God, for God, to give glory to God. So we are here to give glory to God. And the best way we give glory to God, you hear this statement, we make this around here all the time, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him Satisfied in him. Romans one twenty five. it says that we exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things more than the creator. In other words, it's saying we find more satisfaction in created things than we do in the creator. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us that whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we should do all to the glory of God. And so as it re- relates to the three components of fire, this would really have to do with the fuel having an unrepentant heart. We're not dealing with the sin. We are tolerating sin in our life. And inevitably, that's going to put the fire out. So sin is falling short of living for the glory of God. And so that would mean I'm not finding my deepest satisfaction in him. Sin opposes and perverts our full satisfaction in God. And it... It opposes our full satisfaction in God by making other things more desirable than God. It perverts our full satisfaction in God by making me think I'm pursuing joy in God when in fact I'm in love with the gifts I get from God rather than God. Whatever makes you most happy is your God. What makes you most happy? If it's not the God of the galaxies, then you have a counterfeit God. Preferring anything above Christ is the essence of evil and sin. Sin is adding anything to God as a requirement for my happiness. Pretty convicting, isn't it? You and I were created to be stunned by the glory of God. And that's how we were to live our lives. Now, you're in one of three stages, or maybe you might be in one of four stages, actually, because if you're outside of these three that I'm going to mention here, then you are tolerating sin in your life. And remember what I said. You fight the complacency by fighting for delight in God because sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. You guys tracking with me? 
So we're going to always take that other route and we're going to sin is because we're not finding our greatest delight in him. And so that's the fight of faith. Three stages. The, one, the first stage would be a heart fully satisfied in God. This is the Psalm 63, 3. His love is better than life. You're living in a sweet spot. And I wish I lived in that sweet spot all the time. I don't. And I wish you lived in the sweet spot all the time. And I know that you don't. And there, there's certainly, there'll, there'll be days, there's hours of days, and then there's days, sometimes I'll live like that, and there's, sometimes there's weeks. I, I can't say that necessarily I've had months like that. I pray for that, but that's a heart fully satisfied in God. That's the f- stage one. Stage two would be a heart longing to be fully satisfied with God. That's probably, I spend a lot of time between these two stages. And that would be Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the streams of water, how my soul pants for you, O God. So you're either living in a sweet spot where, wow, he is better than life. When you came in here this morning, when we were singing those songs, your heart was stirred, it was moved, maybe tears came to your eyes. You were experiencing his goodness and his greatness. There was no trial, there was no temptation that would ever take you out of your game as it related to your fullness of life in him. That's the first stage. The second stage is you're not there, but all you long you long to be there. You long to be satisfied in him. Here's the third one, and that is you have a heart that is repenting in sorrow because it is neither fully satisfied in God nor longs for it. This is Psalm 73, 22. That's where the psalmist says that he envies the wealthy wicked. And finally, when he comes to his senses, he says, I was brutish and ignorant, and I treated you like a beast, God. And so you're in one of those three categories. If you're not in one of those three categories, then you are probably tolerating sin in your life. And no wonder the, f- the flames are going to go down because you're probably in love with something other than Christ. There's something that you want more than him. And, uh, and holiness is being so satisfied in God that sin not only looks unappealing, but appalling. So let me ask you this. Have there been times in your life where you have been so satisfied with God that, that the things that you were attracted to prior to this almost seem like pff, they're not appealing anymore? In fact, they're even appalling. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. Why would I pursue that when I have him? People make decisions for Christ all the time, but if you made a decision for Christ but you don't have that passionate desire for him, you don't have Christ. That might sound a little harsh, but that's the reality of what the Bible teaches as it relates to our heart's passion. See, sin is loving anything more than you love God. That's why the number one commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now listen to me. He is our most satisfying reality. His love is better than life. And it's not at your cost, it's at his cost. It's astronomical cost. He died on the cross to build a bridge so that you could live in the reality of that 24-7. Oh, my goodness. That's crazy. Yes. It doesn't matter how big of a screw-up you've been this last week. You can run to your daddy in heaven who loves you. He invites you into this relationship. All of your sins have been completely forgiven through the cross of Jesus Christ. 
See, and so, so the fight, the fight every day is to fight to find our deepest delight in him. When you study God's word, when you hang out with other Christians, when you listen to songs on the radio, that's what you're fighting for. Oh, God, help me to see your beauty and glory. May my heart be ravished by who you are and all that you've done for me. That's, that should be your prayer every day as you cry out to him, God. May I find my deepest satisfaction in him because sin is what we do when we're not satisfied in him. So he's tolerating. We don't want to tolerate sin in our life. And fundamentally, sin is about where, where our affections are most attracted to. Are your affections most attracted to him? That's Christianity. Now, maybe you haven't heard that. Maybe you've attended churches that tend to talk about anything and everything other than that. That is what Christianity is all about. You made a decision for him, but do you desire him? Our, my heart for you, our desire here, does a reason to stir up that appetite for God within you. Here's the next one. Let's continue reading verses 10 through 14. We're just warming up here, okay? Here we go. And he says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites, so this is Nehemiah, he's checking out what's going on, what's gone down, and once again, they've had complacency with compromise begin to take place. And so he begins to see that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? There's the key phrase there. Why is the house of God forsaken? So you want to relate that temple to the temple here as individuals and then corporately as, the, as a local church, kind of local temple here, Desert Breeze. And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then, then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain wine and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasures over the storehouses uh, Shelemiah, uh, Shal- the priest of Zadok, the scribe, Pediah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me. So this is, once again, one of these prayers that you see saturated through the book of Nehemiah. Remember me, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds. God, don't let us, what we've accomplished to this point, don't let that be wiped out. Because of their complacency and because of their compromise, these good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Here's the next thing. So how do we fan the flame? By not tolerating sin. Number two, by not neglecting church. So the house of God has been forsaken, verse 11, that's what we just read, through the people failing to tithe. I don't know if you noticed that. And many times people will say, well, tithing, that's 10% of your income, giving it to your local church family is Old Testament. It's actually New Testament. Jesus commended it in, in Matthew 23, 23. He was talking to the, to the Pharisees and he said, hey, that's good that you're tithing, but it's, it goes beyond that. I mean, just because you've tithed, just because you've given, you need to also give mercy and justice and get involved in ministry and be a part of that local church family. And therefore, because of that, the needs of the people were not being met, verse 13, by not, by not neglecting the church. Let me, let me talk to you about this just a moment. This is the oxygen. Nehemiah 11 through 12 is what we talked about it last week. We went into more detail on the importance of the oxygen to our lives, to fanning the flame of our hearts for God, the community 
So let me ask you this. Here's, a, here's some questions to kind of walk you through some logic as it relates to your involvement in a local church family. What has the power to conquer sin, wipe out shame, heal wounds, reconcile enemies, and thoroughly transform broken lives, broken homes, and ultimately this broken world? I mean, I've scrolled through the options. I've been involved in some of those options out there. Politics, I don't think so. Education, I think that's, you know, education is certainly good, but that's not going to turn this world around. How about counseling? Yeah, I'm, I'm for counseling. No, actually, there's really only one thing that can fundamentally and comprehensively transform this world one person at a time, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced of that. I gave up a career with the fire department to pursue this more full-time as I am here. And, 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 and this is amazing. It, Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Here's the next question. Who has been given the responsibility to get that radical message of transforming love to the world? Look around. The church, the church, Matthew 16, 18, what did Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell won't what? Won't prevail. So if you want to be in the middle of what God's up to, you're going to want to be part of his church. He's building a church in which the gates of hell won't prevail. What is the best representation of the church? As I kind of walked through this logically, okay, God's power, how is it best represented on this planet Earth? And here it is, local church families like Desert Breeze. In fact, if you do a study through the New Testament, there's a word for church. The Greek word is ekklesia, called out ones. God has called us out into relationship with him so that we can be an impact in this world, make an impact in this world. And the word church in the New Testament is used 115 times. Out of that 115 times, take a wild guess at how many times it's talking about local church communities. Turn to the person next to you and see if they even have a foggiest idea of how many times out of 115 times it is talking about a local church family within the New Testament. Real quick, do that. How many would say half, half, half of that number, 115, so what would be half of that? How many would say more than half, about three quarters, three quarters? How many would say 92 times out of 115? Ooh, yes, some of you went like this, yes. That's exactly the number I would say. (laughs) You liar. Because that's exactly how many, uh, that's the number, 92 out of 115 times when it refers to ecclesia, it's referring to a local church family like Desert Breeze. Most of the New Testament was written to, to local church families to people within communities. So God has given us the task to get this gospel message into the world, to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. I gave you some verses there, Acts 2, 42 through 47, and I covered this in more detail last weekend, and you can get the message online and listen to it. I would encourage you to do that. But listen to me. I know some of you don't believe this. We live in a very individualistic culture, and it's really hard for me as a pastor to try to get this through people's thick heads, and I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but there's, we, because of this individualistic society, we think that we can kind of live the Christian life apart from a local church family. Listen to me. You will not survive or thrive apart from participating in a local church family like Desert Breeze. It's not going to happen. 
I see people crash and burn all the time. And I'm not talking about, it's more than just showing up from time to time, maybe dropping money in the box. I'm talking about rolling up your sleeves and diving in and being involved in that church family. Tithe is just kind of the bare minimum. It's about a growing Christian. We went through the 5G process of full devotion to Christ and discipleship. So you're a growing, or a giving Christian, I'm sorry, a genuine Christian. You're someone who's made a commitment to Christ. And then naturally, in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, what do you see? You see them getting together with each other. They're hanging out with each other. You couldn't keep them apart. They wanted to hang out with one another. And so... So they're committed to a local church family. They make that public through water baptism. And then the growing Christian is somebody who's committed to more just than the corporate gathering. They get involved in small groups. Are you involved in a small group? You need to be involved in a small group. We have a lot of small groups. Maybe you should be leading a small group. Maybe you should be starting a small group. I don't know what I would do without my small groups. I'm a part of three different small groups. And I'm telling you what, when I hit the end of my week, my end of the week is Thursday, and when I hit Thursday morning, I'm frazzled. But when I spend a few hours with a couple guys, they've got me so stirred up with a passion for Jesus, I'm ready to take on the world. I need that. You need that. So genuine growing, giving, and then out of that overflow, you're to be involved with ministry, looking for an opportunity. How can I be a part of this church family? How can I give? How can I be a part of our kids' classes or helping out with our youth or opening my home to host a small group or lead a small group? And then you got genuine growing, giving, and then you got going. Do you feel comfortable inviting your family and friends here? I know you do because that's how this church has grown. It's grown like crazy because people invite their family and friends. People are inviting family and friends all the time. You're excited about Jesus and you share your faith with them and you're inviting them to come and see and to encounter this life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And then the fifth G is a glorifying Christian. You're doing all of that for his glory within a local church family. You're not going to survive apart from a local church family. You're not going to thrive. I'm not being legalistic. That's how God planned it and that's a part of it. What is God up to on this planet Earth? He's building his church and the gates of hell won't prevail. His people, both individually but also corporately. 92 out of 115 times he's talking about a local church family. And we talked about the benefits of community. Let me just share with you a quick story. That's why it says in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, neglect not the assembling of yourselves together. We need to hang out together. And uh, Oftentimes people will use the, you know, the argument, well, the church is such a mess. Those people are jacked up. So are you and me. We're a mess. That's why we are desperate for Jesus. But don't be a part of the problem by, by abandoning the church. Be a part of the solution. Get involved. Make it better. Be a part of the solution. I hear people say this also. They'll say, hey, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. How many have ever run across people that have said that? Maybe you've said that before. You know what? That would be like coming up to me and saying, Pastor Ray, we love you, but we can't stand your wife. I'd say, you must not really know me very well then. You're not going to be hanging out with me. Does that make sense? Because when people say, hey, I love Jesus, but, but I can't stand the church, you don't know Jesus. You can't be walking with him. He says, I'll tell you what, Jesus gave his life for the church, and you will fall in love with his bride. You will want to, I know she's tattered, she's a mess, but you'll become a part of the solution. You'll be part of the, the church. 
See, their compromise, their, their complacency brought compromise and it created, they began to neglect the church. Ah, I don't need to go to church. I could do it on my own. That's predominant in our society today, this individualistic attitude. I don't need a church family. I hear that all the time. Yes, you do. You need to be a part of a church family. You need to be plugged into a church family. I'm saying that because I love you. I want you to thrive. I want you to survive. Here's the story that I've shared in the, in the game of life. I don't think I've shared it over the last couple of years, but I shared this years ago. And maybe you've seen this on National Geographic where you see this herd of, uh, of antelope running through a field and then they stop and they graze for a while and then the, then the camera will kind of pan over, scan over to the side and then it'll, it'll be looking at kind of some brush on the side and you're kind of like, what, what are they doing that for? And then all of a sudden they'll zoom in and you'll realize that you couldn't see them at a distance, but when you zoom in really close, what do you see over in the brush? You see lions. And those lions are not going to attack the herd They'll be trampled by the herd, but what are the lions waiting for? They're waiting for a, a stray, one that's weak, one that's kind of straying back behind. And oh my goodness, it is vicious when you see these lions jump on a little you know, antelope and, and devour it. It's, it's brutal, unbelievably brutal. And this is what the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You need a local church family. You need the protection of a local church family. I was sharing that a number of years ago, and for some reason I got my words twisted up, and I was talking about a herd of, of cantaloupes running through the field. <laughs> and I continued, I didn't even catch it. I continued through the story and it says, you don't want those lions to come in and eat those cantaloupes. And they were all looking at me, and I, I noticed that it wasn't really making much of an impact. And somebody raised their hand and says, we've never seen cantaloupes running through a field. And I go, did I say that? Cantaloupes? It's not cantaloupes, it's antelopes. So you want to you wanna just keep that in mind. We have an adversary. He's after us. Hey, let's continue on here. Okay, I, I hit that hard enough, didn't I? Okay, by not tolerating sin, how do we fan the flame? By not tolerating sin, by not neglecting the church. Here's the next one. Let's continue reading. The story gets a little better here. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of, of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. You see anything wrong with that? Sabbath, Sabbath. There's, I mean, he's talking about the prosperity, but, but they're starting to work when they probably shouldn't be working. In fact, they shouldn't be working, and that's what he's going to get down on. He says, and I warned them on the day when they sold food Tyrrhenians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? How now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So you see the word over and over again, profaning the Sabbath. And neglecting the Sabbath. And as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. So, you, so what's going to happen here? You've got people outside the walls, can't get in. They're going to wait until the Sabbath is over. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I like that. That's pretty good. 
So the next time, you know, we cross paths and you're doing something that I don't like, and I say, I'm gonna lay hands on you. Or maybe you say that to me. We'll know what we're talking about, huh? He goes, he's about, later, a little further on. Don't read, we'll get there. But he's gonna go UFC on him. You know, he's gonna go ultimate fighter on him. He's gonna get pretty crazy, but he just says, hey, don't do that. I'm gonna lay hands on you. And uh, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. No kidding. Nehemiah, he's, he's a crazy man. And then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor. Oh, my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. God's word once again. And so here's the next one. And this really has to do with the, the fuel that we desperately need, the fire in our hearts, the way we keep that fire lit. And uh, so how do we fan the flame by not failing to enter Sabbath rest? We need to talk about this for a minute. I don't have a clock up here, so I need to look every once in a while. We'll, we'll knock this out. So by, by not failing to enter in Sabbath rest, are we talking about something legalistic here? Uh, in the Old Testament, yeah, they, they needed to do it, but, but we know, in fact, that's, it's in Exodus 29 through 10. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Is that we need to, it's, it's actually the fourth of the ten that we need to set a day for Sabbath. When you get into the New Testament in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 through 28, it says that Jesus actually said that I am Lord of the Sabbath. So what is he talking about there? Should we have a day that we set apart where we, you know, just give it to the Lord? I personally think that you should. In fact, uh, the one day a week rest we take, is it should be just a, a taste of the deep divine rest we need and find in Jesus. In fact, I believe that we should, and this is what I try to practice, and, and for years I didn't do this. I was a workaholic, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that and what drives us, why we work so hard. It's because we're, we haven't entered into this Sabbath rest, and we don't even understand what the Sabbath rest is all about. But I think that we should divert daily, Every day there should be a time when you just, where you, where you be still and know that he is God, where you step out of the traffic and take a long, loving look at him, your high God. That's what it tells us in Psalm 46.10. That's the message, that last quoting was of the message Bible. Step out of the traffic, take a long, loving look at him, and you should divert daily. So every day there should be a time in your life where you're practicing this kind of Sabbath rest. But you should also withdraw weekly. I think that there should be a day a week, and you do it the best you can. My day is typically on Friday, where, where I do nothing except focus in on stirring up my appetite for God. Because I do that, that's the end of my week, and then I do some chores, and sometimes I'll combine it between the two days. My Friday is actually my Saturday, and my Saturday is my Sunday, which would be for you, and I don't want to confuse you because I'm already confused. And so, uh, But those two days are just before my first day, my work, work day, which is today, which is your Sunday, and this is my Monday. Welcome to my world. It's pretty scary, isn't it? But, uh, but I want to be charged up. For God when I come in here. I came in here today because I have those days and I take that Sabbath day and man, I'm, I am so stoked for God and I love him so much and he just overwhelms me regularly and as I was singing the songs here this morning, I was just overwhelmed with tears. I ended the service with tears. I'm going to read something a little bit later on. It just brought tears to my eyes. It's just, just amazing the richness of his love when you live in the reality of that and so you need to do that. Do you divert daily, withdraw weekly 
and abandoned annually. And we're going to go on vacation a few weeks. And the purpose of our vacation is that we get close to Jesus. We get rid of the clutter. We, just, we focus in on him. We find that, that Sabbath rest. Now here, let me talk about why we don't do that. Because I screwed up a lot of vacations with my family, okay? Because I did not rest. But, uh, but our overwork is a failure to rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross, Our overwork is an attempt to justify ourselves to gain the money or the status or the reputation we think we have to have. I found it interesting, and as I kind of watched and observed something in in professional football, the retirement of Kurt Warner versus the retirement of, of Brett Farr. Did you notice the difference between these two guys' retirements? Wasn't that interesting? Kurt Warner, who who is a Christian, I, I believe that he is, and and he would he felt like it was always for God's glory. If you ever heard him give interviews, it was always about God's glory. In fact, he retired at the pinnacle of his career because he basically said, "Ah, you know, football's fun, but it's not my highest priority. It's my family and my faith." So he's able to bow out. It was no big deal. But Brett Farr, did you notice that he couldn't quit? He came back, and then when he came back that last season, oh, my goodness, some kind of sexual indiscretion and some messed up deal. And here's what, here's what you know, kind of what I begin to see between the two. Kurt Warner was rested even when he was exerting himself because he understood the Sabbath rest. He understood his identity in Jesus. Brett Farr was weary even when he rested. Let me take this a little deeper so you understand what I'm talking about. Our overwork is what happens when we are working for our identity rather than from our identity. Brett Farr couldn't quit it because he was working for his identity. Kurt Warner was working from his identity. He was complete in Christ. I don't need another year of this. You guys hear what I'm saying? He was able to say no. Brett Farr couldn't say no because he was driven back into the game. We're driven towards work because we're not resting. Oh my goodness, there's not a better rest than the rest that is found in Jesus Christ. A couple statements and we'll move on here. The gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves because we are already perfectly accepted, eternally secure, and infinitely significant in Jesus Christ. See, that's Sabbath rest. When he says, I'm your Sabbath rest, that's what it's saying. The only person in the universe whose opinion counts looks at me and finds me more valuable than all the wealth in creation. So therefore, out of that completeness, I can have good boundaries with my work. I can say no to certain things when I know that I'm overworking, I'm doing too much. That's why Jesus said in the 11th chapter of Matthew, come unto me all you that are burdened heavy laden, I will give you rest. Okay. 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 Let's go on. Hey, last, last section. Okay. I'm not going to read the whole part of it, but this is good. This really gets good. Okay. Here we go. Last part. So in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. That's what happened to me. My wife. 
And when she did it, she took me to this verse right here. She said, see, Nehemiah did it, and I'm going to do that to you if you ever step out of line again. No, she didn't do that. So he goes off on them. So what is he talking about here? And you can read the rest on your own. It's really quite, quite interesting. But uh, he's talking about uh, not partnering with unbelievers. Evil company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15.33. This is not an issue of interracial marriages. This is an issue of interreligious marriages. If this was an issue of interracial marriages, I couldn't have married my wife, Nancy. She's a Texan. <laughs> Any Texans here? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, it's, it's actually talking about interreligious. And so he's talking about friendship, but he's also talking about marriage. Let me, let me just talk a little bit about friendship, and then I want to talk about marriage. Uh, but it's, it's about friendship. It's, it's uh, where do I turn for advice and approval? And, and when we talk about friendship, and the reason why this is so important, because the essence of discipleship is that we become like the people we hang out with the most. And, uh, and it's more than just people. It's the people in the TV shows that we watch, movies, music, magazines, Facebook, Twitter. You cannot feed on a diet of worldly pursuits and unholy entertainment and expect to have a heart ignited with a passion for Christ and live a life to its fullest in Him. It's not going to happen. So all I'm doing is I'm challenging you to think about who, do you, who influences your life? Where do you go? What do you fill your time up with? Who are you hanging with? And uh, let's talk about marriage here. It's also about marriage. The Bible gives us two restrictions for marriage. Uh, one is they have to be of the opposite sex. You guys, you guys tracking with me on that one? Okay. That's Genesis 2, 24 through 25. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. So they have to be of the opposite gender. Here's the second one is that they, they need to be a believer. So those are really the only, really two restrictions that the Bible puts on, on marriage is that they need to be opposite sex and then they need to be a believer. Let me just talk about that for a minute, about a, a believer. And I did a whole series, actually two weeks on this back in Ephesians. You can go online and, and download a couple of the messages where I go into this in more detail. But let me just say one aspect just to convince you because I, I see this all the time. I see a lot of gals and guys compromise. Well, I just can't find any good guys or good gals out there and I don't know what I'm going to do. And I just, I just really, well, you're desperate. That's really what's going on here. And, and you need to understand that you need to marry a believer believer, and if there's no believer that ever shows up, be cool with it, because your completeness and contentment is in Christ anyway. Okay, so I'll get back to that point, but let me, let me talk about this mission of marriage. See, the mission of marriage, Ephesians 5 kind of gives us a little bit of this, but the mission of marriage is that I would be my wife's best friend, and she would be my best friend with the goal of wholeness. So here's how it goes down. If I'm my wife's best friend, my job in being her best friend is to help her to love Jesus more than she loves me because if she loves Jesus more than she loves me, she's going to love me sacrificially. You guys tracking with me on that? And you can't do that if you're married to an unbeliever because they're going to be working off a different set of plans. That's why you need to be married to a believer because the, the goal, and, and besides the fact the mystery of marriage is to be a reenactment of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can't do that either. And so my job is to help her to, to, to fall in love with Jesus. And when she does, she will be more in love with me because that overflow of his love for her will come onto me. 
Now, here's what happens is that oftentimes is that I see people compromise. They become complacent in there. They're not finding their deepest satisfaction in God. They become complacent, and then they compromise in that. If I try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on my own through Christ, all of my relationships become an effort to complete myself. I've got to find my completeness in him. And listen to me. Jesus completes us. He completes us. He'll even help a bad marriage because a lot of times our, our issues are we're trying to find something in our spouse that ultimately Jesus should be meeting within us. And so it solved a lot of my marriage problems. It's because I started seeking him rather than seeking my wife and turning her into an idol and, and it, it brought a lot of satisfaction. Okay, we're almost over here. Let me give you two announcements and then I'm gonna... Um, so just, I mean, just go through this this next week. Don't just write this off and say, okay, we're finished with that book, but are you tolerating sin in your life? Is Jesus your, your most satisfying reality? Fight every day for that. And uh, are you neglecting church? Are you part of a local church family? And are you uh, failing to enter, enter Sabbath? I mean, are you, do you spend considerable amount of time where you're just stirring up that appetite for God? And then the last one is not partnering with unbelievers. Who are you hanging out with? Who are you hanging out with? What, what's influencing you? What kind of movies and things is, are influencing your life? And, of course, we talked about marriage there. And so we talked here. So revival is the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the hearts and lives of the people of God, igniting a passion for God. May that be true with us. So let me give you a quick teaser for our next series. This is just a, a minute video, and I'll talk to you about it. Let's watch this, and then I'll give you one more announcement, and then I'm going to read a, a hymn. of Psalms, and uh, this Psalms is going to take us all the way until we move into our new facility. Now, now it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll be cool, but the Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible, so that's meant to be kind of a funny, it's not going to take us a whole book to get moved in, we'll probably be in by September-ish or sometime around there, but it's a phenomenal book. If you're struggling with getting the passion of Jesus deep into your heart, that book of Psalms is perfect. I mean, we're going to spend some time, and this is what I would encourage you to do. Next week, begin to meditate on Psalm 1 because it's the doorway in the book of Psalms. It's phenomenal. Now, here's the second announcement. Center Church Society, formerly Dead Theologian Society, and our prayer night are combining together tonight, sponsoring a video uh, by teaching of uh, John Piper from his advanced 2013 conference. And, and the title of it is A Hunger for God, the Foundation of Ministry. And I believe it's the foundation for life. I've, I've listened to this at least five times. Oh my goodness, it has stirred up appetite for God within me. I would invite you out tonight. You don't have anything better else to do anyway. So come tonight. 
It's hot out there. Come tonight. Hang out with us. Five o'clock at the church offices. We're going to watch this. And we're going to discuss it. This is a great segue from this series into our next series. It will stir up your heart for God. Let me conclude by having you stand. Would you stand with me? And I'm going to read to you a hymn that I could not get through in the first service. So I'm going to try to get through it. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, if you're familiar with it. Reverend Robert Robertson was apprenticed to a barber and hairdresser when he was 14, but everything changed on May the 24th, 1752, when he went to hear a sermon by the great evangelist George Whitfield. During his sermon, Whitfield burst into tears and cried, Oh, my hears, the wraths to come, the wraths to come. Those words troubled Robinson for more than three years until he finally gave his heart to Christ on December the 10th, 1755. Robinson became a preacher of the gospel and the writer of two hymns, Mighty God, While Angels Bless Thee, and this one, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. He died at age 54 while on a preaching trip in Birmingham. Listen to the words of this. These are powerful. Come Thou Fount of every blessing. Who's he talking about? He's talking about God. He's talking about Jesus. Fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount. What is he talking about there? Mount Calvary, the cross. I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter. Fetter, let me be chained to your goodness, is what he's saying. Bind my wandering heart to thee. This is what I love. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.